Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free the following ad is sponsored by pets best insurance services pets come into our lives in many ways shelters breeders or unexpected encounters but no matter how you found your pet they become our perfect match Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girl Bomb. Girl Bomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self-care. So to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you, and treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. From the small towns to the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. We work hard day in and day out to bring you stories from everyday Americans. We tell the stories about this great country that may not be perfect, but sure is beautiful. If you'd like to support us and all that we do here, visit OurAmericanStories.com and go to the Giving tab. Join our team in the work we do and become a part of all that's going on here. We're a nonprofit, 
and we appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly donations. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now the story of the brunette bombshell, Hedy Lamar, who was more than just a pretty face. Also, the story of a Cuban refugee who became the creator of the Coors Light Silver Bullet can. But first, Edie Hand tells us the story of her brothers, the Blackburn Boys, and the tragedy that struck not once, but three times. It was a setting in northwest Alabama, just like in a novel. A sister's love for these three young boys, David, Terry, and Philip. Every afternoon after school, we would get off our school bus, run inside and get us a doodad cookie and head to the barn. I would saddle up my horse. My horse was named Trigger. And I named it Trigger because of Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. David would saddle up his horse named Spotted Cloud because he loved the Long Ranger and Tonto. And then Philip, now he saddled up his horse. He had a little Shetland pony, and he named his horse Polly because he was in love with our Avon lady. And then there was Terry. He was just too small to have his own horse, so I would throw him on the back with me. We would head to the Indian mounds, and on our property we had about 40 acres, and we would get to the top of the mounds, and it was a wonderful place to lie down, let the horses wander around, and we would start talking about our dreams. Now, David, he was going to be a race car driver. He was a great talker, and he was really funny. He would turn his hat around backwards and... He would get his pocket knife out and start cutting holes in his hat all the time, making them bigger and pull his curls through it. And he would pick up a pine cone and start saying, Oh, here comes Ruth Magoo down the road. She has one kid. No, I believe there's four, maybe five. Ruth had rather large arms, and she had one hanging out the side of the window, and she was smoking a cigar. So we just had a field day with Ruth Magoo. And then there was Philip. He was really kind of shy. He felt like he was, he just didn't know how to get involved with people, but he loved music. And my mother's brothers were singers and songwriters, and we come from the history of the, the late Elvis Presley of that family on our grandmother's side. So he says, I think I'm just gonna grow up and be a songwriter and Maybe drink a little whiskey, because that seems to get all the girls coming around. So we said, oh, well, whatever, you know, he was going to do. But I learned from him about seizing moments in life. And he was that way. He tried to seize moments. If it was playing football, if he were up to bat for a baseball game, he wanted to be the best he could be, always practicing to be the best and seize every moment of something that could be Great, not good. And then there was Terry. I think I learned the most about life from him. Uh, He taught us about courage. He wanted to grow up and become an architect because our dad's dad was a builder. He built buildings and homes, and Terry said he was going to grow up and be a big architect. He wanted to build all kinds of 
skyscrapers, buildings. And we said, wow, we barely can say the word, but you're going to do this? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was kind of cool to hear everybody share what they were going to do, and they would say, so, Edith, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about other people, and I'm going to be a movie star. And they went, oh, sure. Well, we're going to visit you in your mansion one day, okay? And so we teased each other, and our mother, her name was Sue, but her mother had named her Ripple Sue, so we would call her Rip Dip, which she hated. So when we were on the Indian mounds and Rip Dip would get really loud, but when she was about the fifth or sixth time, Edith, David, Terry, Philip, come home and eat. Well, we, I said, boys, let's get up. It's time to go home. Rip Dip's on her last scream, you know. So we would know to mount up, get those horses back to the barn to go have dinner. But it was a wonderful way of growing up in this simpler times. But I guess I just didn't realize that what was happening in my life and what I was learning from them, it was my only time that I was going to have with them because they would die young. David died at the age of 19 in a car accident. I was a senior in college. I was devastated at that particular time in my life He was my best friend, and he was the most important man in my life. So it took me a year just to kind of get back into the groove of life. And he was the first one in our family to pass away. Ten years later, my brother Philip was killed in an automobile accident. I remember what a horrible time it was that my father called me and he said, I'm, your mother and I just can't go. Would you come and identify your brother? I just didn't realize how hard that would be. I drove to North Alabama and identified the body. It was just so hard seeing how life really was. One day you can be with someone, and the next, they're not a part of your life. You're washing their last load of clothes. Then I guess to me... The last one, the strongest one, Terry, they found he had an aneurysm in the middle of the brain. And Terry had brain surgery. And I'll never forget the courage that it took the night his neurosurgeon came out and said, I don't know if we can save him. I'm going to have to leave his head open. We're going to try to go back in one more time. Would you like to see him? I remember my mother was unconsolable, and my father was with her, and I went to be with him. It was like a war zone for me. I'd never seen anything quite like I saw in that room at the UAB hospital. I'd never seen that kind of pain before. His hands were strapped down, and I remember he said, You have to save me. You have to save me. And I I could not save him. And I stayed with him as long as I could, and I prayed. I tried to comfort him. There was no way to comfort him. I went outside, and I said, you have to do something for him, Doc. You have to do something. He said, I'm going to put him in a room. You can stay with him all night. 
I don't know that he'll make it, but we're going to try surgery again tomorrow. I remember I didn't think he would make it either, but he went into the surgery. They lost his hearing. He, he lost his taste. Several things weren't the same. They sent him home more of a broken man. Didn't think he would live very long. But Terry, watching him fight for life, taught me so much about courage, of how he wanted to live as best he could, that my father built a ramp in his sunken den, that he'd built his home with his own two hands on his land. He talked every day or listened to country music. Then he realized when he went back to the doctor that he was going to be losing his speech. I never saw someone with that much determination. He says, what can I do, Edith? So I I fixed an A to Z sign for him. And I said, I'll point at these letters. We'll make it work. So that is the way we communicated. And he said one day, he said, I am going to lose my voice. Would you promise me that when my time comes, would you come and hold me? And I want you to tell our story one day that the Blackburn boys, that our life would be an encouragement to tell people it's important to be kind to one another, to enjoy the simpler things of life. It's not all about the money you can make, but it is what we do for one another and how we encourage one another. You know, and I am glad that God allowed me to be able, when I got the call, to come and I held him in my arms. Now they're all buried under that big oak tree. And in the loss of these three young boys, it took me a long time. But I know this, if we all look for it, no matter what season of life we're in or what hardship we face or heartbreak, that there is something beautiful to come out of it if we look for that. And that has been my saving grace. And you just heard Edie Hand's story. There's not a dry eye in our room. And what a story about remembrance, about family. Her brother, she buried them all. And all too young. David, 19, in a car accident. It took her a year to get over that. Ten years later, Philip... Another car accident. The parents couldn't even go and ID the body. Edie had to do that. And then watching her brother struggle after an aneurysm, learning about courage, how he fought for life, taught me about life, she said about her brother Terry. And he also said, tell our story one day. And so Edie just did. Be kind to one another. Enjoy life. It's not all about the money. And the three brothers... All those three brothers and sisters who rode horses together on those 40 acres. The three boys are buried under an oak tree. And if you have a story to share, we want to hear it. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And click on the Your Stories tab. We can't wait to hear from you. Up next, the story of the brunette bombshell, Hetty Lamar. Author Richard Rhodes tells the story of the woman behind the invention of secure Wi-Fi, GPS, and our Bluetooth of today.
Famous Hollywood actress Hedy Lamarr was born in Austria in 1914. By the mid-1940s, she became the world's first superstar in Hollywood. She was known for her striking beauty and her at times scandalous movie appearances. Pulitzer Prize winner Richard Rhodes wrote a book titled Hedy's Folly, The Life and Breakthrough Inventions of Hedy Lamarr, The Most Beautiful Woman in the World. This book helps unpack the life of a woman that perhaps we thought we knew. Here is Richard Rhodes. When she walked into a room, she actually stopped conversations. People would be startled by her appearance. The sad tragedy of her life, in a way, though, was that she was also highly intelligent. And since she was so strikingly beautiful, uh, hardly anyone ever noticed her intelligence. It wasn't uh, factored into the kind of role she was given in movies, where she usually played some conventionally beautiful woman falling in and out of love with a handsome leading man. I mean, the tragedy of this woman was that she was, as she pointed out, more than a pretty face. She liked to say sarcastically, I can tell you how to be glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. <laughs> Growing up in Vienna, her parents were wealthy. Her father was a Jewish banker and, a, and an athlete. Uh, her mother was, had trained as a concert pianist. And she grew up in what was a really multicultural and multi-religious uh, community in Vienna just around the time and after the time of the First World War. So a very cultured world, Vienna was, was just one of the centers of culture in those days, and particularly of theater. And she fell in love with theater. Uh, she was a good actress. She was a, she was smart, and she learned to play roles, and much more than the roles she later would play in American films ever tested her for. She also became kind of the catch of the day in, in Austria, exactly because of her beauty on the one hand and her fame on the other. And the second richest man in Austria decided he wanted her for his arm piece and courted her. His name was Fritz Mendel. This relationship was doomed from the start. He had pursued her for her beauty, and because of that, he also was terribly jealous and insecure, making him quite a horrible husband. I mean, he had maids picking up the extension whenever she was talking with friends on the phone and had her followed and so forth. He was quite certain that she was uh, cheating on him which, as far as I understand, she was not. So, on the one hand, it was a glamorous life uh, with, with castles and uh, beautiful apartments in Vienna. And, uh, but on the other hand, she said one time she felt as if she was in a golden cage because she really was locked away. It was now 1934, and pretty soon the Nazis would take over Austria. Hetty wanted to get out of Austria to pursue her dream of becoming a famous Hollywood actress. Of course, her jealous husband thought it was in bad taste for her to be an actress, so she decided to leave him. 
The truth is, as I found when I researched the newspapers in New York and in, and in Vienna, that it was quite a public divorce, as one might imagine. So off she went, first to Paris and then to London, and uh, she had her jewelry to pawn to put together a kind of nest egg. It happened at that particular point in time that the Metro Golden Mayor, the Louis B. Mayer, the director, was in London and traveling around Europe, buying up the contracts of Jewish artists who understood that it was time to get out of Europe uh, ahead of the Nazi uh, attack on the Jews. He was able to sign, get people to sign contracts at fairly low wages with his studio for up to eight years at a time. So he really was kind of buying job lots of European actors. Hetty wasn't going to be conned into uh, letting that happen to her. So when he made an offer to her after she met him in London, she basically said, no, that's not nearly sufficient and walked out. That intrigued him. And then she found out what ship he was sailing back to the United States on, booked passage on the same ship, made sure he saw her playing deck tennis with handsome young men on the ship. And by the time they arrived in New York, she had a contract for a pretty good weekly salary uh, for only three years and a commitment to make a certain number of films. So she was launched. She had charmed the director of MGM into hiring her for the price that she wanted. There's no doubt that while her beauty at times was a burden, at other times, she used it as a tool to get what she needed. She got to the States and soon started her new career as an actress. Her first film with MGM was with French-American actor Charles Boyer. We pick up with author Richard Rhodes describing Hetty's breakout into Hollywood. There's a moment in the film, and it was really Hetty's debut in Hollywood, where she steps out of a doorway into, into a lovely kind of sunlight, and she burst on the world as this extraordinarily beautiful woman and really became a star overnight as a result. So from there she made a few more films with uh, Metro Golden Mayer. She, like so many people who emigrated to the United States out of that terrible world of, of pre-World War II Europe, was immensely grateful to the country for taking her in, and she became a citizen around, I think, 1942 or 43, after she had spent the requisite time living in the United States. While she loved her new home, the United States, and was grateful to be where she was, her heart still went out to those in Europe. During the Great Blitz of London, when the Germans began bombing London relentlessly, the English moved their children out of London to the countryside, or in large numbers they were shipped to Canada. This was the first time in history that countries were bombing cities and civilian areas. In attempts to save them, the British sent their children away. Hetty one day reading, following this in the newspapers, was horrified to read that, that uh, a shipload of children, one of the liners that was being used to transport them, had been torpedoed by a German submarine and had sunk with, I think, 82 children were killed in that particular assault. By then, she had 
done something really quite unusual for Hollywood. She didn't drink. She didn't like to go to loud parties. But in order to fill her time between movies, she had to find something, some other way to occupy herself. And she took up inventing. She, in the course of her life, invented, uh, let's see, a little box to attach to your Kleenex box to have a place to put your used Kleenex. She invented uh, some new kind of stoplight. She invented a chair on a pivot that could be swung into a shower so that someone who couldn't stand up in the shower could take a shower and then swing back out in the chair and dry themselves off. So she was kind of a classic inventor in that she had no technical training particularly, but she had a way of looking at the world that, that asked, how can you fix this problem, this large or small problem that exists? So when she read about the German submarines torpedoing all these English ships, with, particularly the ones with children on them, and realized that this was, this was Austria and Germany were, was, was where she came from, and that it was horrible that, that, that her background should somehow be tied in with this terrible business of killing civilians. She decided she would figure out a way to make it more possible than it was at the time to attack and destroy a submarine. Unfortunately, the torpedoes of the day didn't have any real guidance systems on them. You would kind of move as close as you could and aim the torpedo in the general direction of the submarine, or, or rather where the submarine would be when you thought the torpedo would meet the submarine, and then you'd launch. And uh, almost all of the torpedoes missed their targets. So she thought, well, there must be a way to guide a torpedo. And the way she thought of was using radio a plane or a surface ship with a radio transmitter could transmit a signal to a port torpedo that was probably, let's say, towing an end, a wire antenna behind it on the surface to pick up the signal. And the signal could direct the, uh, the rudder on the torpedo left or right and guide the torpedo in real time to the submarine and blow up the submarine and therefore pre prevent the children from being killed. While the United States had not yet entered the war, there was an organization set up where inventors could send their wartime invention ideas to the government. There were something like 300,000 submissions in the course of the Second World War. Uh, unfortunately, almost none of which ever got developed into a workable instrument. That's where Hetty turned to find support for her idea of a radio-controlled torpedo. Now, she also had found a collaborator. This was another colorful figure from the 10s and 20s of the century named George Antile, an American composer of avant-garde music and a uh, concert pianist. Antile had been working in Europe for about 10 years during the time when Eddie was living there and, and, and met her again when she came to Hollywood and he had retreated to Hollywood to write uh, music for films in order to make a living. They met at a dinner party with some friends and immediately bonded over the fact that they were both very interested in the European war. Hetty broached the idea of her of her torpedo. Uh, Antio was immediately interested. 
The question became, what kind of radio control system could you use? There were no bio, no, no uh, digital chips in those days. What would actually tell the torpedo how to direct itself? Antile's music had featured a number of compositions, some of them quite notorious, uh, using player pianos. And the player piano is operated by a scroll of paper with holes in it that rolls past uh, a vacuum uh, pipe. And where there's a hole, air is sucked in and that triggers the mechanism that uh, makes a key activate on the piano. So Antile imagined that you could probably make a miniature version of one of these scrolls. You could make them out of something more durable than paper, obviously. And that that device with its, in fact, he actually gave the scroll that they used in their model, 88 holes, rather like the keys on a piano. So they had then Hetty's original idea for a radio-controlled torpedo. They wanted one, however, that couldn't be jammed by a radio signal because if somebody was on the, on the enemy side was picking up radio signals and they heard the signal being transmitted from the ship to the torpedo, they could, by producing a sound on the same frequency, basically jam the signal. So how do you solve that problem? Well, there Hetty got her idea from one of the world's first uh, remote control boxes that had ever been used. She bought a very expensive radio, and radios in those days were the sizes of, of refrigerators. Uh, she bought a remote control for her living room radio that had was basically like the dial on an old dial phone, but it was a remote control. And she thought, well, something like that would work. And that's where the notion of having multiple frequencies with the signal jumping from frequency to frequency in a more or less random pattern would allow the transmitter to send a signal to the receiver in the torpedo uh, that would jump around all over 88 different frequencies and that no one could follow fast enough with a jamming signal. So the signal could go through, it couldn't be jammed. Here was a really great idea. They put it all together the, with the help of a, a physicist specialist in electronics who was loaned to them by the National Inventors Council, the organization I mentioned that was there to make these inventions possibly useful to the government. So obviously the National Inventors Council thought this was a worthy project, and, and indeed it was it probably would have worked very well. But when they took it to the Navy, the obvious place to take it once you had worked out the basic ideas and had a blueprint for an invention, which, which by the way, she and George Antile, Hetty and George then patented. It was patented under Hetty's maiden name, which at that time was Markey. So the patent was assigned to uh, Hedvig Markey and George Antile. And under that name, it was, it was given to them as a protection for their invention. They then donated this patent to the U.S. Navy. After passing it off to the Navy, the Navy stamped it top secret. And they didn't hear about it for a long time. Hetty went on to live her life. She had two children and ended up getting married a total of six times. The longest marriage lasting about seven years. 
After a little over a decade in the early 1950s, the idea for the radio-controlled torpedo was resurrected. The technology would soon prove itself to be incredibly useful. When someone pulled it off the shelf and tossed it over to one of the many small engineering firms that, that the military keeps and maintains to, to develop ideas. And the engineer who looked it over thought, wow, this is an interesting idea. Not for torpedoes, but for ship-to-ship -ship communications because it was something that couldn't be jammed. So the first application of the, the, the Marquis Antile invention came in the early 1950s in the form of a communications system between a plane and what's called a sonobuoy. A buoy, of course, is an object that's floating in the ocean. This particular buoy had a uh, sonar system on its underside, underwater, that would project sonar signals down through the water to listen for submarines. The inventor, who spoke of it later as a very successful invention, said this was a perfect way to, to make sure we had a, a signal that was secure between the plane that would fly over and pick up the communications from the sonoboy uh, and from the sonoboy itself. But pretty quickly, the Navy realized what an efficient way this was to talk from ship to ship. And the ships, for example, that were sent down to Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 were all uh, fitted with radio systems that used the patent that had been developed by Hedy Lamarr and George Antile. After that, it spread through the military. It became a pretty standard kind of communication systems. In the 1970s, uh, a lot of these World War II and era, that era military secret inventions were declassified under Jimmy Carter as a way of boosting uh, commercial development of these things. And this invention was picked up and used in some of the early car telephones, which of course preceded the kind of uh, cell phones we have now, but had a similar problem that was not privacy so much as the fact that if you had one car telephone talking to another car telephone on one frequency within a particular a given city, there would only be about a hundred frequencies that you could use. That would mean that no more than a couple hundred cars could be talking to each other at the same time. And that obviously was not a commercially viable proposition. But if you could use this jumping frequency hopping, as Eddie called it, uh, which came to be called spread spectrum when they changed it slightly, but it was basically the same idea that you move a signal around among different frequencies. With that, thousands of cars could talk to each other at the same time. And no one would really hear more than an occasional, maybe almost inaudible blip if, if two of the signals crossed each other and, and blotted each other out. Then later on, it was used as the basis for what we call Bluetooth today and still is used in Bluetooth. It didn't become the basis for all of our cell phones, primarily because it was slightly more expensive to manufacture the system than it is for the one that's used in cell phones in the United States. 
So the manufacturers decided they'd rather go with something that wasn't quite as good, actually, but that didn't cost them quite so much to make. There are, I think, cell phone systems elsewhere in the world, however, that do use the, the spread spectrum frequency hopping system. So what started out as a, as a laudable interest in trying to save the lives of English children uh, became then a patent that no one saw any use for for about 10 years. And then it became a superb communication system for the Navy. Then it spread through the military. Then it was used, I think the GPS system that we all operate on these days is, is another example of, of the Hedy Lamar George Antile spread spectrum system that communicates back and forth between the satellites overhead and our, all of our ground systems. And then eventually Bluetooth, which of course is just universal for short distance communication with all sorts of smart, smart equipment that we have around us today. Now the one piece left in the story is Hetty's lingering feeling as she got older that she had never been given proper credit for this invention. You know, she didn't want the money she had, had, had given the patent to the Navy, but she kind of felt that the very least that the nation could do for this gift she had given it was to, to thank her in some way. But of course, it had all been lost in the fact that her name on the patent wasn't Hedy Lamar, it was Hedwig Markey. A man in Colorado who is working on digital communication stumbled upon the Markey Antile patent and wondered who these people were and why their patent for this frequency-hopping spread-spectrum technology was just sitting there. Started looking into it and discovered to his delight that, that Hedwig Markey was Hedy Lamar. He had, like so many men of his age, had been absolutely, had a crush on Hedy when he was a teenager during the Second World War. And the idea that she might have not ever received credit for this really bothered him. All of this culminated in the inventors kind of getting together as, and agreeing that she should receive an award. And she did uh, in the early 1990s. Uh, it was the P Pioneer Freedom Foundation in San Francisco, which is devoted to recognizing the work of early digital pioneers. She obviously fit that category. She by then had had so many plastic surgeries that she really had ruined her face and she no longer went out in public. But she had a son who, who did and who came to San Francisco and received the award for her. She had made a tape for him, which he played to the, uh, to the, the conference. In it, she said, basically, thank you. I appreciate finally being recognized. But she had said to her son when he called her before this event and told her what was coming up, she, she had said in inimical Hollywood style, well, it's about time. Then her last dream in life, this was a person who really did accomplish the things she wanted to accomplish. Her last goal in life was to live to the turn of the century, which she did. She died in January of the year 2000 in her little house in Florida near her, near her, her children. Happy woman, no, she, I think she was never happy in love, but she did some extraordinary things in her life. 
Without Hedy Lamarr, our radio technology would not be what it is today. And great job on that, Faith. And what a story. And my goodness, it wasn't the money she ever wanted, but getting that recognition by the Pioneer Freedom Foundation in San Francisco, a big deal to her, as it was to live to the turn of the century, another life's goal. And again, the book by Richard Rhodes is called Hetty's Folly, The Life and Breakthrough Inventions of Hetty Lamar, the most beautiful woman in the world. A grateful woman, grateful for the country that adopted her and saved her from the ravages of Nazism. And we're so glad you found the Our American Stories podcast. Help others discover us by giving us a five-star rating. It really helps us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or whatever platform you listen to us on. Help others find us so they can hear these amazing stories from this good and great country. Finally, the story of Mark Barrios, a Cuban refugee, and how he left his mark on the American advertising industry. Here's Joey with the story. Mark Barrios lives in Colorado, and he designed the arts for a product all of us know and many of us love. But before he became a successful commercial artist, his journey began somewhere far warmer than the Colorado Rockies. Here's Mark. I was born in 1944 in Havana, Cuba, way before the revolution. My parents were divorced at an early age, but life in Cuba was like a regular teenage kid. I mean, we were raised in a middle class. I was able to go to a, a private school. We spent the time somewhere in the beach, and um, to, to me, it was kind of paradise. And then I was 14 years old when Castro took power, and that's basically when my life completely changed. Within weeks, he started nationalizing the industry, like the, the electrical industry, the sugar. After my grandfather had passed, he had left my grandmother like a total of six houses, and she lived in one, and she was renting the other five. Well, right away, they confiscated those five houses, and they said, well, we're going we're gonna to keep giving you the rent that you're collecting from the houses, but those houses now belong to the state. So I was not going to inherit the houses, my mother and my uncle. Those houses were taken by the state. A lot of the uh, my books were burned in some of the major streets, uh, and they were introducing new books into the school system. My school was uh, confiscated, and turned into Friends of the Soviet Revolution. In every city block, they will have a committee of the revolution. So if you did, if you were to school, if you did the daily affair, they knew what you were doing. But let's say that you wanted to go and spend two days in, like we used to do, spend some days in the beach, you will have to let them know. They, have, they needed to know where you're gonna be every single day of the week. And that's the way to control the people. Obviously, the freedom of the press, that right away, that's one of the first things that they took down. They took out um, freedom of religion. I mean, my God, they all the, they confiscated private schools, especially those belong to the Catholic Church or any, any religious group, like the one that I was uh, attending to. I mean, all our freedoms got taken away. They took away 
our guns in, in the, for the sake of the revolution, they took away your guns. Sins that you take for granted are taken away. And then they will put people in the firing squad just for disagreeing with the, with the, uh, with the revolution. Some people were put in the firing squad because they were trying to conspire against the, the but that's no reason to put them in the firing squad. They got, they got rid of all of them. And, and Che Guevara, which not, it wasn't even a Cuban, I mean, here they, this guy, he was the, you know, of all the criminals in Cuba, he was probably the worst one. Originally, when Che was brought in, he was brought in as the treasurer of the country. After that, then he took over the tribunal to start processing the people that they have caught. And uh, that's when things got out of hand. He wanted to get rid of anybody that disagreed with, in any way with the government. There was no, you know, they were not taking anybody, leaving anybody alive. If, if they disagree, if they can prove, or not even prove, they had a hint that you were anti, uh, anti-government, uh, they would, you could end up in that firing squad. But they think that into the thousands and thousands I were killed by Che. As a matter of fact, I think the only reason that Che Guevara left Cuba, I don't know, the, I don't know really obviously what happened. I think Castro finally said, hey, go someplace else because you're really, you know, if you continue in this path, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna kill the revolution. And that only, that only has to do, and then take everything away, whether you have a house or you had a business, and then you put people in charge that were brought, people that were not qualified to, um, to run those businesses, so they took the whole economy, was, the, the economy collapsed. It didn't make any difference whether Russia was buying the sugar from Cuba. It was basically a lot of the middle-class business owners started leaving Cuba a million of them left, and then you start putting people that were not even trained or qualified to run the businesses, so the economy collapsed. Once the economy was collapsed, uh, then they had full control. I mean, they relied on, on the government. They, they nationalized the banking industry, they nationalized the energy sector, the petroleum industry, and everything was controlled by the government. It's still controlled by the government. And, um, you know, you, 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 you make, in Cuba nowadays, you make more money as a as a taxi driver of one of the old American cars than you are as a as a doctor or, or as a professional. So, ah, man, those are very scary days back then, and and. Um, and I was kind of lucky when I was told to put when my when my uncle told me to, uh, to told my mother to uh, whatever it takes to get me out of there. It's because after the Bay of Pig, uh, sure enough, Castro the first scene after quenching the 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 invasion, he started grabbing all the uh, teenagers and uh, send them to what he called help the farmers, but it was really basically send them to concentration. Uh, camps to help with the with the sugar uh, to cut the sugar canes, but I, it was really basically um, a concentration camp to take them away from the families at least for a period of times. So yeah, it, it, those were very sad, sad days.
Arriving on a student visa, Mark and his mom managed to escape the sadness for a place of hope, the United States. He and his mother made Colorado their home. While maintaining a full-time job, Mark attended the University of Boulder as a full-time student. And although his mother and uncles who lived in the States wanted him to become an accountant, Mark had a different vision. He had a passion for art. My major was in fine art and anthropology, which, you know, I, I don't know how you either become a starving artist or, or, uh, or a, a, a teacher. So a friend of mine uh, told me about a school called Colorado Institute of Art, which was more of a commercial art advertising. And that was really fascinating to me. I mean, what a way to communicate with people visually. So I, I started attending there. I found a job at the hospital, at a hospital working in the x-ray department from uh, Friday to, to Sunday, uh, 40 hours, so it was great. I didn't have a life, but at least I have a, a full-time job, but I was able to, to go to school at the same time. So I graduated in 1966 uh, from the Colorado Institute of Art. After spending a couple of um, Spending about a year working for some smaller agency, I was approached by uh, Coors. They had an opening in their art department, so I I took that that job. I was also married at the time, a previous marriage, and uh, so I figured that that might be a more secure job to have at Coors. And then in 1975, Coors' biggest competitor, the Miller Brewing Company took the industry by storm with their release of a light beer, Miller Lite. That changed the whole industry. Miller Lite started taking a lot of uh, shares away from uh, Coors. Coors already had a hot product, the Banquet Beer, which they marketed as America's finest light beer, not based on calories, but flavor. But with Miller Lite's success, some folks in the company began to question Maybe we should make an even lighter beer to compete. The management of the company, they felt that Miller Lite was going to be a fad, that light beer was not going to be around for, for a long time. Well, obviously they were wrong. But at the same time, the company had brought a, a new guy into the picture, one of the family's son, and that was uh, Peter Coors, and he was in charge of the marketing department at the time. So Peter took over, and he felt that we needed to introduce a live, a live beer. Um, and I guess you're in the right time at the right place. Uh, they have created a live product before, but it was too close to our existing, the existing course banquet. So basically, not only Miller Live was taking business away from Coors, then here we are, this new Coors Live package was so similar and look was so similar and advertising was so similar to the existing course that that brand was cannibalizing our own brand, our, 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 the banquet, the banquet brand. So I'm sitting one day in my uh, desk during lunchtime having my lunch and Peter approached me and he said, what do I thought of the, of the product? And I told him basically it's just too, it's just too, uh, too close to the original course and, um, and I didn't care too much for it, so he told me, I would like you to start designing a new package. Well, uh, so I was pretty excited, and after my boss got back that, after, that afternoon for lunch, I told him, I said, man, Peter was here, 
he was really asked me to design a new package. Well, because he had designed the previous package, he didn't want anything to do. But then he basically told me, no, I don't want you to, to do it. And I said, well, I cannot be in the middle. You're gonna have to. To make this story short, um, Peter came back and he basically told him, no, Mark is gonna design this. He's gonna work on this package. So I started working on it, and one of the packages I was designing was playing with the using the silver. I thought that the light category they, they were using both both Weiser and Miller was using the white, and to me it was too medicinal. So when I was playing around with the colors, I noticed that this the silver because it was really attracting, it was very clean, was very fresh, very contemporary. It reflects in the shelves, so. I ended up um, kind of pushing for that color as a background color, and the brand, you know, supported me on that. They, they took it to focus group, and they liked the product, but they didn't think it looked like beer. So, but anyway, Peter decided to roll with it, and because the other the other package was not doing any good, and obviously, the rest is history. Coors Live became. Uh, grew very rapidly. Uh, yeah, there was college kids that started calling the course uh, like the silver bullet, so what a better place. We were probably smart enough at the time to accept that phrase. It, you know, sometimes you spend years and years trying to develop a slogan. This one was created by the consumer. So course Light became the, the silver bullet. I was promoted to the head of the department so basically I was in charge of all the advertising, all the uh, promotion, the point of sale, the packaging for the different brands. So little by little I was be able to build an art department to a, a creative services department of uh, over 36 people including, you know, uh, including creative directors, copywriters, art directors, production people, multimedia people. So we probably became one of the largest uh, in-house in creative services. I tell you what, if I, if I had to uh, give credit to somebody who changed my, that changed my life, basically, and in a very unexpected way, it was Peter. Mark went on to open his own business and landed promotional jobs with several blockbuster hits like Batman, Jurassic Park, Apollo 13, and Space Jam. He has truly lived the American dream. Even an immigrant with a thick Cuban accent can be successful in the American advertising industry. Sometimes you, you talk to an accent, people don't listen to you too well. And that's human nature. There's, I'm not throwing any, anything there ex other than human nature. So this visual thing I was be able to, to do was very, to me, it became, it solved a problem. It solved a way for me to be able to, co to communicate visually. I'm creating a, a, a look, and then there are people accepting them. I don't even have to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. They're accepting me or a product of me. And they don't even know me. I think that was done in Jurassic Park. It was done in, in, in Coors Light, obviously, very successful. So yes, every t when I go by, I mean, changes are taking place in Coors. Some of them have been good. Believe it or not, I think they have done a very good job in protecting the essence of what my vision was. Now the package today is so much different when the package that was done in 1978, it's almost like day and night, but that essence, that 
feeling, that crispness uh, that I envisioned is still there. Mark is now retired and married to a spouse he dearly loves. They have three children together who now, as adults, wish to further connect with their Cuban roots. At the end of 2019, Audrey and Alex and Christopher, my middle son, they said, hey dad, you know, they want to go to Cuba. I said, you guys should go to Cuba. I said, well, we're not going to Cuba without you because we want to, you know, we want to see our roots uh, and you have to come along. And I really didn't want to. I said, you know, I, I just don't want to go and be depressed by, because I've seen pictures of my high school, places I used to live, places I used to visit, you know, and I, I really wasn't, I, I don't want to go to that, to that place. But then I said to them, you know what, let's, Let's go ahead, I will do it. Just because of you guys, I will do it. So we were all excited to start making the plan. At the last minute, my, my wife, um, mother, she's you know, 81 years old, she can't even hardly walk, she decided she wanted to come. And we felt that wasn't, you know, that wasn't really. So we're going back and forth about because if we go to Cuba, she won't be able to move around, there's nobody there left. So we, and then suddenly COVID hit and uh, we did cancel the trip because obviously I, uh, we were not going to go there. So that happened at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of two. That's we were scheduled to leave on March, uh, and that's when you know. As a matter of fact, we had uh, plane tickets already, and and that's when COVID hit. So we never got to visit Cuba. So I still don't know if you know. I'm getting older, and I'm still in good, fairly good shape for being an old fart, but uh, I will do it for them. I won't do it for myself. I, I, I find myself very, very lucky that, uh, you know, that I was be able to come here with $5 in my pocket, a change of clothes, and, you know, have a wonderful, over time, have be able to, to raise a, a wonderful family and give, and give that family the the freedom uh, to be living in this country because obviously if I would have had the family it could have been the same family could have been in Cuba so at least the family here be able to have the freedom that uh, that they can that they have by living in this country and now I have a next generation family the grandkids are growing up and and be able to see them grow and it's just 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 very gratifying I know that you're interviewing me, but man, how many, oh my God, have millions of uh, stories probably like mine. I, I'm only one of those stories in the naked city. I mean, I'm sure that there's, a, you know, and I, I think that's the beauty of a country like ours, man. It's just so many opportunities for anybody that have a passion, that are willing to do things a little bit different. Um, opportunities are there. Indeed, opportunities are here, and there are millions of stories like Mark's, and we try to bring as many of them to you as possible. A great job on the production of that piece by Joey, and a great job by Alex on the interview and bringing this story to us. And my goodness, there's just so much here, and it's so beautiful. He comes to this country in the end with $5 in his pocket and a change of clothes. But as he put it best, he was given the gift by his mom of freedom, 
and he's passed that freedom gift along to his kids. And that's what America does for people from everywhere. I know from my Italian grandparents and my Lebanese grandparents, they came here for precisely the same reasons, for opportunity and for freedom. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, please go back and listen to them. We have the story of a man who collected a B-25 in his own backyard, the story of the disastrous 1904 Olympic marathon, and also the story of Tony Maglica, the creator of Maglite flashlights, plus many, many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories Podcast. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, At these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's plenty to celebrate in March. And ex... Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places.